I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of capital allocators or their firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of capital allocators or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities discussed on this podcast. My guest on today's sponsored insight is Ravi Viswanathan, founder and managing partner of New View Capital a venture firm that created a disruptive model for strategic secondary investing that blends portfolio acquisitions with direct investments. Our conversation covers Ravi's path to the venture industry, lessons from 15 years at NEA, catalyst for creating NVC, and the rationale and opportunity set for venture secondaries. We discuss NewView's investment process across the sweet spot for portfolio acquisitions, fallacy of discounts, work with portfolio companies, and exit strategy. We close with new opportunities on the horizon and the future of New View Capital. Before we get going, we're hosting our fourth cohort of Capital Allocators University in New York City on September 14th. Capital Allocators University, or CAU, is a chance to connect and learn with peers. We'll bring together a few dozen allocators each with around five to 15 years of experience to share frameworks on interviewing money managers, investment decision-making, leadership and management, and investing. And we'll engage with four fantastic chief investment officers, Jenny Heller from Brandywine, Kim Liu from Columbia, Anna Marshall from the Hewlett Foundation, and Brian O'Neill, recently retired from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. You'll get a chance to meet some great people and learn a lot in an information-filled day. Hop on our website at capitalallocators.com slash university to apply. Please enjoy my conversation with Ravi Viswanathan. Ravi, great to see you. Great to be here, Ted. Thank you for having me on. Why don't you take me back to the early days and led you on this path that you've been on ever since? Venture is actually my third career. I was a scientist many, many years ago in the Bay Area, a material scientist. Decided I didn't want to be a scientist, thought the commercialization of technology was more appealing to me than the research of technology. So did a hard pivot via business school, did consulting. And then really the path to venture started in January of 2000 when I joined Goldman Sachs. So I've been a VC for over 23 years, three firms, Goldman for four years, NEA, which is the bulk of my experience, 15 years, and then launching NewView about four and a half years ago. Goldman really shaped who we are and who I am in terms of what we're doing here at NewView on a number of different levels. First, I joined in the beginning of 2000, if you remember, marking back to those days. <laughs> I do. <laughs> very, very interesting time. It's the first of three downturns I've lived through. Hopefully, this is the last one. And the second is the group I joined was a private equity group. It was actually a mishmash of fund investing, direct investing, co-investing, and secondaries. And I drove the venture piece of that. And so actually, back then, Because of the downturn, I did get exposed to venture secondaries, which shaped me a fair amount. If you fast forward 20 years, we spend a good chunk of our time focused on that market. It's changed in that it's probably two orders of magnitude larger in terms of market size. 
venture and secondaries put together with a bad connotation. It was really not done. And what was done was more continuation vehicles and closeout funds. It was much more transactional, more passive, more of a trade. We're trying to do something very differently. But that experience really shaped me. I spent four years there. It was an amazing experience. And I finally figured out, I really like this thing called venture capital. Maybe I should try to go to a pure play firm and really learn the craft of company building, which is how I really was taught. I knew the NEA folks and joined them in 2004 and spent a wonderful 15 years with them as a general partner. NEA is a firm that really started mega funds well before it was called mega funds. I didn't even call it that because there's so many funds doing it now. But it was one fund, seed all the way to growth, tech and med. And then I was a GP on the tech side, focused on enterprise software and fintech and growth investing. I want to pick apart a few things. First, take me back to that 2000 experience. You joined venture, you decide that's the path you want to go on, and then the whole market gets a cold splash of water in the face. What did you experience going through that? As a spectator, I experienced a lot of company failures. I spent a lot of time thinking about the downturns, what we can learn. And I'd say every downturn, there's similarities and differences with the one you're facing now. There were probably a fair subset of companies that had no business being companies in that downturn. The dot-com era, we all know the lore of that era, but saw a lot of company failures, saw a lot of business models that up until then was masked with capital. And that's something that every downturn is a referendum on product market fit. Whereas before, when you had that run-up, capital or some other factor masked that. We also saw a lot of strife within the LP community, whether it's individuals or institutions that wanted out. I remember having conversations with folks and they thought, oh, if I invest in venture, I'll get a five to 10x in two to three years. Because in 1999, in the early part of 2000, that was actually happening. And for those that were not accustomed to that market, you would think that would be the norm. And there was a lot of education that no. It's just very much a long-term, sometimes brutal game to get to the finish line in a positive outcome way. Why don't you walk me through your experience in those decade and a half at NEA? It was an amazing time. I joined in the DC office. It was a smaller office back then. And it was very much an apprenticeship model. This is the old days of venture capital. Peter Barish hired me, ran the firm, ended up running the firm for 20 years. And so really sitting at the feet of giants like Peter, Scott Sandell, and some other tremendous investors, I joined as an associate, just worked my way up, principal partner, general partner, started as a generalist, but really found enterprise software and also started our fintech efforts about 11, 12 years ago, well before it was called fintech. It was really company building and also the ethos of the firm from Dick Kramlick was one of the founders, very focused on the entrepreneur and really being a good partner and a long-term capital partner. And those are just lessons that I still hold pretty sacred. What does it mean to you to being a good partner with an entrepreneur? You don't really know until the negative times, but really it's two things. One is actually adding value. We're not private stock pickers. It's really company building. It's not just capital. Capital is fungible. So how do you add value to the company in ways that the company really wasn't able to do without you? And second, and this is more important, Even in good times, the journey is never completely linear up and to the right. It's tortuous. It's a tortuous journey. So being a good partner when there's serious issues with the company, whether it's product or market or team or execution, and sometimes there were times, especially 08, 09, where you felt like a lot of folks left the building because they couldn't really grok that model. And we're seeing a redux of that 
for sure here where it's just invest and everything will take care of itself. And that usually never happens. What were the ways that you figured out that you uniquely could add value to the portfolio companies? A lot of it was not rocket science. It's just learning from my elders, building a relationship, coffees, dinners, lunches, whatever, with the CEO, with the management team. Because what you're doing is you're building trust and respect, and you're building this goodwill bank such that when tough times happen, you have the agency and license to ask the tough questions. And you've crossed the threshold in that the CEO and the management team really knows you as someone that just wants the best for the company. Dick Kramlick would say, when you have a problem or an issue with a company, just go back to one fundamental question. What's in the best interest of the company? And it's a very simple, almost throwaway phrase, but I've actually invoked that more times than I can even recollect, especially in some of these trying times. So you have this great run at NEA. What was the catalyst for creating NewView? The catalyst really started as this grand portfolio management exercise. This is in 2017, and NEA was a single global fund. We did everything underneath that fund. That means that as a GP group, and there's 10 or 12 GPs at any point driving the firm, we really had to make sure that we were on top of the various strategies, sectors, et cetera, within the fund. So we noticed, not unlike our peers, that we were raising, the funds were getting bigger and were raising faster and faster because of the market opportunity commanded it as such. Companies for sure were staying private longer. Instead of seven, eight years, it was 10 to 12 years. So you had this portfolio that was growing. We also had a generational shift. They had done a nice job of that with probably a dozen partners and GPs had retired or left. So we wanted to make sense of the portfolio. And I raised my hand on the GP group and said, you know, I'd love to drive this. We all knew the top one, two, three percent of the companies. It's going to really be the fund makers, the power law phenomenon, which is still very much the case in venture. And sadly, we also knew the bottom performers because it took up a lot of time. It was this big middle region that we wanted to get our hands around. And we discovered a bunch of companies that were really high quality companies, but just for a variety of reasons, either there were older funds or the lead partner was no longer there. We just weren't paying as much attention. They're also generally quite well run. So we thought, should we do something about this? Why don't we spin them off? I did some research and I thought, oh, this has been done before. And interestingly enough, it hadn't. And this is that redux to 20 years earlier where secondaries and venture were still perceived in a negative way. And it was never really strategic. It was much more transactional, more of a trade. So we thought, why don't we spin this off? It gives liquidity to any LPs, but it's a quality enough product slash set of companies that it would attract new LPs. And then this is really Q1 of 2018. We couldn't do it within NEA because this is a secondary. So it needs to be under the auspices of a registered investment advisor, RIA. And NEA wasn't an RIA back then. They're actually an RIA now. And for me, that was the epiphany. It was a light bulb moment. It was 20 years coming full circle and went to GP Group Scott Sandell and said, I really would love to do this. And that was the birth of NewView. And we raised capital. Funnily enough, almost all of the LPs were NEA LPs. And we closed Q4 of 2018. That was the birth of NewView, so to speak. So before you got there, I'm curious about the decision process when you identify that there's this good group of companies that aren't getting quite the attention because of the size of the organization and the power law. How do you think about doing this as you did as a, in the secondary compared to just dedicating the resources within NEA to go and maximize the value of those businesses? It's a great question. It's one that we actually did think about. But I think what it came down to, a lot of these companies were in older funds, but interestingly enough, 
Another big dynamic was companies where the lead partner or general partner was no longer there. Just by how venture firms work, which is based on the parallel, where there's a lot of companies in a portfolio. And especially in this era, most general partners had a lot of companies are generally overloaded. It doesn't get easily assimilated. So they were great candidates. As or as I'd mentioned, these companies are in older funds. We did the analysis for us to have a group of folks come in and really manage that. It just didn't make sense in terms of the motion for the firm. The motion for the firm was really raise funds and really go after some of these opportunities that could be fund makers. And then to have the infrastructure in place to do it. I also think it's apart from the ethos of a venture capital firm. Since the dawn of venture capital, it's been IPO or bust. You're going to have these, we call them needle movers, these iconic companies that really define venture capital and define venture capital firms. The quest is about that versus we've got really good companies. How do we make sure that we get a return, a quality return out of that? And so I think part of it was ethos. Part of it was just, it didn't make sense strategically. And part of it is I actually thought there was a real opportunity here. And I tested this with a lot of my peers and found that this was not just unique to any This was really, this dislocation was happening across venture, which also made sense. So as you set out to do this, what did you see as the breadth of that opportunity and the pockets where you thought you could take advantage in this strategy? The trend line that bigger funds are being raised faster and faster was not unique to us. And frankly, there was a lot of firms that had far more accelerated paths than we did. I saw that across industry. I also saw the generational shift happening. A lot of the things that were happening with NEA, I saw firsthand at other firms. And I also saw other firms just hadn't even gotten around to thinking through that. Now, obviously, it's a very different story five years hence. That was probably a big determinant for us to say, this isn't just an isolated incident. And then if you also look at, again, venture secondaries, it's so underpenetrated. In private equity, it's about 2% penetrated, and that's doubled in the last decade from 1% to 2%. So that still has some room to grow. Venture is 0.3% penetrated. So in that market, our estimation, we've done some analysis, 50 to 100 billion just in what we're doing. So if we are to practice what we preach to our companies, what's the TAM, the market size? I felt that it was a massive market and I saw the pain point and you could do it in a strategic, thoughtful, value additive, partner friendly way versus this trade mentality that was happening up until then in venture. Why do you think the venture secondary ecosystem was such an order of magnitude smaller than private equity secondaries? It really gets down to ethos of venture firms. I was trained in venture. There's the power law phenomena. It's the IPO bust. And then, of course, there's strategic M&A. And then this financial sponsor M&A started happening probably 10 years ago. Never really thought, well, we can just sell to other firms. Just wasn't really how venture capital was built. On the flip side, if you go to the buyout world, it's this evolution of man. The lower middle market folks get companies and they sell to the middle market folks, sell to the large cap folks. And you have that virtuous cycle. And actually, you have situations where in lots of cases, every set of constituents along the way make money, but it's done well. So I think that's, and venture really hadn't thought of it that way. It is really nice to see that that is changing. We spend a lot of our time, I call it in software speak, evangelical sales, really educating the market. And it's not a negative connotation, it's actually a positive connotation. I think the LPs will you'll serve them well by doing that. It really stems to just how venture has emerged and really persisted over the past decades. 
So when you set out to do this as New View, what was the process like for raising the capital to buy these assets, as you said, from existing LPs at NEA for the most part? I affectionately refer to it as I went on three different roadshows. <laughs> One is we actually went to our LPAC at NEA just to, we wanted to make sure that they blessed it. And they all thought it was a really interesting idea. Actually, someone's actively managing the portfolio. So kudos to you. We need to make sure that it made sense in terms of pricing. And then I went on Roadshow with new LPs. We did it such that we wanted to make it a clean break. Everyone was going to get a check. And then there'd be a bunch of new investors that would jump in and really form new view. And a lot of them could be the same investors, but different groups, a secondary group or different vintage funds. The third very important roadshow went on was the companies, because this was very new for the companies. And we need to make sure that they were comfortable. And we had a rule. We said, if they resisted, this is dead in the water, because that was a constituent that we couldn't have as unhappy or dissatisfied. So that was really the process. And obviously, I was conflicted. So it was really the new LPs that came in, and this is public knowledge, but Goldman Sachs and Hamilton Lane were the leads. Goldman was the lead, and Hamilton Lane was the co-lead. They priced it, and we need to make sure that all the parties knew that this wasn't a basket of dog companies, it's really quality companies, and that it wasn't a forced sale that need to make sense on all levels. And so that was the whole process. And I was just facilitating and making sure that all the pieces were in place to make it happen. What was some of the pushback that you'd hear either from new potential LPs who decided not to invest or someone that had a stake in the game all along the way? Two pushbacks from new LPs. One, this was such a foreign concept. They'd never seen such a big venture secondary that wasn't a closeout fund or something else. That was one. The second is they were trading in discounts that were far greater than the discount for this group of companies. And that was just because, well, when you're dealing with lesser companies, the discounts are higher. And some folks just couldn't grok, well, wait, this is a higher quality group of companies. So hence the discount needs to be much more mild. And then there's some existing LPs that thought, wait, this discount is too high. So it's one of those things where the best negotiations are when both sides are not 100% satisfied. And I think one of the articles that came out, they interviewed a bunch of LPs, and that was some of the sentiment which led me to believe it worked out because there was not one group that was ecstatic and the other despondent. So once you brought these assets in, to take this from a one-off secondary into what it's become, an asset management business, where did you crystallize your strategy and describe what it was that you'd be doing going forward? Some of the principles we wanted to adhere to is we really thought this was a white space that we resisted in the early days being called a secondary firm. And actually, if someone asks us, are you a venture firm, a growth firm, or a secondary firm, we basically say, cheekily reply, all of the above and none of the above. We sit at that hybrid. And we actually think that's where the white space is. Being able to think like a company builder doing growth deals, company builder being a venture capitalist, but using secondaries as a way to do it strategically and thoughtfully. What that means is we wanted to make sure we had a primary practice investing in direct deals because they feed off each other in that we're very operational and we're very thematic. And that's also something that's not really done in the secondaries world. In order to be operational and to be thematic, we need to have a portion of our first fund be blind pool for new deals deals we could lead, we could follow. The difference is because we're a registered advisor, we could lead deals but have secondary components in them as well. And then that was 2018, 2020, we actually bifurcated into two separate funds dedicated for each. Direct investing could be primary, could be secondary. 
that dexterity for us is really powerful, especially taking advantage of market dislocations like we're in right now, and then portfolio acquisitions. And so that took a bit to really crystallize that strategy and that transition. What helped was day one, we had 31 companies that we went to and said, look, you may not have a lot of follow-on under the NEA tent because you're an older fund. Guess what? We'll reset the clock. We'll provide follow-on. We'll provide value-add capabilities. My first two hires were ex-operators in my companies. One, Tim Connor, four-time CFO. The other, David Yu, 25-year product veteran. Because we also wanted to infuse a lot more company building in the growth stage. Because five years prior to that, and especially after 2018, this high-velocity deal-making really exploded. And by the way, some of them were very successful doing this, just invest in a lot of companies and not really pay attention to necessarily helping them. We just had a different point of view that company building can still exist. We call it scale up versus startup. So that was all infused at the birth of the firm. I'm curious if you break apart these two business lines, there's regular direct investing and then these portfolio acquisitions. How do you compete with other venture capitalists in the eyes of an entrepreneur in direct investing when not all of 100% of your attention is focused to those particular deals? For us, the business lines are actually a lot more similar than different. The go-to-market and sourcing is a little bit different, but even the portfolio, these are highly curated baskets. So they're baskets of companies, and we look at each company as if it was a direct deal. And we're also highly thematic. I'd say 80, 90% of what we do is B2B software and fintech, which is where I grew up investing in. But I would say on the direct side, it really is this back to basics. We're much more viewed as a boutique where we do fewer deals and we don't have massive fund sizes. It's much more artisanal. Because we do fewer deals, we can build a relationship with companies for 6, 12, 18 months. And in that gestation period, we get to know them and they get to know us. And if we really get excited about it, we'll actually try to find ways to add value. Recruiting. Our third partner on the portfolio management side is a go-to-market person, Chetan Chaudhary. So we actually can help these companies and they realize, oh, these folks, they don't take up a ton of space in the cap table, but they're value additive and they punch way above their weight. And this flexible capital has been really significant. They can do primary, they could lead the round, but they can also help with the cap table, help with tenders, get other folks that need liquidity out of the cap table and really drive that process. And so that really helped us formulate our differentiated approach in, to your point, a pretty crowded landscape. And then on the portfolio side, we just hadn't seen anyone really do this. There's folks that do individual company deals and these continuation vehicles, but really these curated baskets were active strategic investors and partners to the VCs. A lot of it, just 23 plus years of relationships and venture for myself and decades for my partners and colleagues. That's another big difference. Venture is still an inefficient market, and it's still absolutely a relationship-based market. So on either activity, as you look through the portfolio acquisitions, what have you found beyond the industries constitute your sweet spot for what you're trying to find in companies? It's post-product market fit. Most of what we do is probably series B and beyond, but I hesitate to say that because the letter designations these days really are not as meaningful. The 10 to 50 million zip code in terms of ARR scale is a sweet spot for us. I'd say half, if not more of what we do is there. And then there's a good chunk that's even greater than 50 million, where call it 10 to 100, where you really need to institutionalize. You're going from a hero sale to more systems and processes. You probably need a CRO or a COO, need a lot more metrics focused, and you need that machinery and that instrumentation layer to get formed. 
We're actually very good at that. And we've done that with lots of companies, both in my time at NEA and at NewView. And this is where the early stage investors, they're still very powerful. But where they're exceptional is really that ideation, product market fit, initial scale. And then that real hyperscale is where we spend most of our time. With these particular types of companies that you're investing in, how do you think about the risk-reward profile? certainly sounds different from a venture firm, power law distributions, because you're purposely not going after those companies. If you think about how growth used to be done, especially from 2018 to 2022, it just got exploded. Early stage folks are doing growth and vice versa. You have a more banded outcome set. You underwrite to a three to five X. You have a lower loss ratio to compensate. Maybe the upside isn't as a true power law early stage franchise. Having said that, we still invest in hyper growth. Most of our deals are well above 50%, many well above 100% are unprofitable. So while it's three to five X, there's something where if things really align, there is still a 10X potential, but it is more of a banded outcome. Now, having said that, we do leave, I'd say a small percent of our fund called 10 to 15%. We'll go early where it's a space we know really well or a team we know really well, and we're willing to take that leap of faith and go earlier. We have that capability. What's the competitive dynamic like for winning these deals, particularly on the portfolio acquisition side? On the portfolio side, we don't see a ton of folks doing those portfolio type deals. Now, there's a lot of press out where pure play venture firms are looking at secondary deals. So the individual secondary deals, people are realizing you can actually get really high quality companies at really nice pricing. Now, there's a lot of gotchas that we, after five years in this, internalize, and there's a fallacy to that. You have to really understand that. And then generally, you could be buying common. You could be buying heavily junior preferred. You could be buying stuff where there's structure. So there's all these things. That's the art part that you have to infuse into the science. You have to be careful that the certainty of closing in these secondary deals, when you do a primary deal, I'm going to give you a term sheet. Okay, and we're going to close in 30, 60 days. Secondary, it's very different. There's restrictions. There's rofers. And so what we try to do really is make sure we have a really good relationship with the CEO. It's blessed by the CEO. It's blessed by the board. They see the value add capabilities. And that is the best hedge against any friction in us being able to transact. So much of it is as evangelical sales. Some of these conversations, we probably have talked to over 50 VC firms. Some of them have been talking to them for six to 12 months, if not longer. That's the difference, really understanding what we do and what they're solving for. And every one of our deals with these GPs is bespoke. Some could just need DPI. Some may have a board load issue or a capacity issue or an NAV concentration issue. They have three companies and one of their funds accounting for 90% of whatever it is. And so for us going and working with them and figuring out what they're solving for and making sure that works for us in terms of companies we like, we get excited about. And so some of these really take quite a while, but we've done several and everyone have come back and said they want to do more with us just because for them, sometimes they'll talk to some of the secondary buyers who are more buyout folks and maybe don't know venture, don't know the relationship aspect. They view it much more as a transaction. We view it much more as a partnership and we're willing to invest in that partnership. How does the pricing negotiation go? What we try to do is generally it's a discount obviously. But we also move away from, I call it the 100x ARR club. We have a lot of very high quality companies, even some high flyers, but some of those that are such significant valuations, 
it's tough for us to go because it's a relationship game. We won't go and say, we'll do it at an 80% discount. It just doesn't make sense for us because we'd rather not engage on that particular company because it could be insulting to the GP. Also, when you're so far off, we don't even know if that valuation can persist over time. So we actually find the sweet spot of companies we like, sectors we know. It's thematic. So we already know a lot of these companies built relationships. But the last round price actually isn't crazy. And so you still need a discount, but our discount isn't so high that it's going to be insulting, but it's high enough that it works for our underwriting and for our LPs, and it could work for them. I would say on the portfolio side, there's as much, if not more, art than science. There's certainly a lot of science in terms of the underwriting. That's why there's a lot of back and forth to get to something that works. Just because the last round generally was done in a different era, we just want to make sure that they understand what the market is. And a lot of folks understand it, and they said they still want to have a conversation because the other lever they have is they don't have to sell 100% of that asset. They own 15% of a high flyer. They could sell us 20%, 50%, whatever it is. So they still retain some upside. And that usually is a really good sign. It means that back and forth is working. What is that fallacy of the discounts that you're seeing? In the private equity world, in the buyout world, it's a very efficient market. Company A and company B, based on EBITDA, based on certain metrics, you know where they trade. And it's generally discount X and discount Y, they're fungible. Well, venture, it's completely different. It's when did you do your last round? The last round is whatever you could sell shares at. It could be 11X revenue, it could be 100X. There's what the last round was, when the last round was, and what the growth rates and the prospects of each individual company are. And we tell even our LPs and other LPs that I know that discount is important, but I can show you a 5% discount on a company that's far greater than a 50%. Since we don't know how to normalize that, we just go to intrinsic value. What's the value of this business? And knowing what you know about this business and the management team and this market, what's the prospects? And can we get our target return? And that's how we think about it. And obviously, that always leads to a pricing that is a discount. But between venture and buyouts, it's just such a big difference there. Once you own one of these businesses, how do you try to work with the companies to improve their operational performance? Well, it's two different approaches. On the direct side, a lot of times we'll be leading the deal. We'll get a board seat or a brewer seat. Even if we don't, we make sure to have a strong relationship with the team so we can add value. We have five partners. Three of them are operators. One finance, one product, one go-to-market, and they're not operating partners. They're full partners. They have fiduciary capability. They have check writing capability. They're fully integrated, which is another nuance and probably unique to us. So it's really engaging the company. But also, we don't need to do it for the sake of doing it. So a lot of times, if the company's gunning on all cylinders, the best thing we can do is stay out of their way. But we found even in the high flyers in our portfolio, we can still add value. For example, how to think about an independent board as you get closer to an IPO. It's a long set of metrics, finance, operations, executive, recruitment, go to market. We go very deep there. Product, we go pretty deep there. Now, on the portfolio side, sometimes we're buying a basket of companies that's generally all secondary. Sometimes we don't have a strong relationship and we're chipping away building that relationship. And it's more just earning the right to be helpful, really figuring out what's in the best interest of the company, how do we create equity value, and what can we do to do that? Sometimes it's getting involved in one or more of those things. Sometimes it's pulling back and just letting them run. You mentioned that the operating partners are fully integrated different from an operating partner model. What are the subtleties of those differences? Sometimes at these firms, they're full-time, but sometimes they're part-time. 
a lot of times they're probably, I wouldn't call it path to retirement, but the intensity is probably different than when they were operators. Probably the biggest difference is they're not full partners and sometimes they're not in the full partner meetings and they don't have the check writing capability in that if there's a follow-on or some financing, they have to go back to the partner group or their partner or GP sponsor. Uh, Not always, but many times we've seen that. Actually, the first two hires, Tim and David, they were called operating partners. And a year in, I promoted them to partner because it was actually a disservice internally and externally because they're doing so much more. Um, And so that subtle nuance means they get a partner. They don't get an operating partner because there's been situations where CEOs get, quote unquote, an operating partner. And sometimes they worry, are they getting the full power of the venture firm behind them? This is a signal, a strong signal to the company that you're getting the full power and let me prove it to you because these folks can write checks, they can do follow-ons. What's the rest of your team supporting those five partners? Well, we have these three and then we have another partner, Ben Fu is on the investing side. And then we have a really high quality group of folks that are developing. So we did this at NEA and I was pretty heavily involved. This is the junior development program where you hire associates and the ones that are exceptional, that you really build them organically into partners and general partners. You know, 15 years at NEA, we had a really great track record of that. It's harder to do, but you can build generational diversity. You can build gender diversity. You can just do a lot of things where, and they're a lot more cohesive in the team. So we have a group of principals. Some of them started as associates, but they have gone from being associates to sourcing deals, leading deals, shadowing partners on boards, and then taking on board seats. So it's that apprentice model that I learned a hundred years ago that I thought was really powerful and durable that we're trying to impart. And the great news is over the next few years, many of those folks will become partner. And if they continue to perform, they could really drive this firm down the road. As you look back to the first transaction with NEA, the billion three that you purchased of assets, how has that been similar or different in how it's played out thus far relative to your expectations? I think broadly speaking, it's played out really well, but the company by company hit rate would probably be lower. The portfolio hit rate was very high. But I would say that portfolio may have been broader than the ones we're looking at now. The ones we're looking at now probably have less consumers, much more focused on enterprise software and fintech. And the reason the NEA portfolio was broader is that I had 15 years of know-how in these companies. Even if it were consumer companies that maybe I didn't know intimately, I just knew day in and day out, how they're performing, high quality the management teams were. And so that's tough to replicate outside. So for these portfolios, I would call it much more thematic in our power alley. Now, for sure, in order to take some of these companies we're excited about, we may need to take others that are not in our core areas, and we're happy to do that. But by and large, it's more focused. I'd love to hear some examples beyond that initial NEA transaction of some of the investments that you've made, particularly on the portfolio side. There was one fund that really was in harvest mode. They'd had a few really successful funds, but the partners had moved on. And so there was a collection of probably a dozen high-quality companies. We down-selected to literally two or three that we really liked that fit our sweet spot. There was another fund that was a fintech-focused fund. thought, you know what, we really would like to get DPI to be able to enable their next fundraise. And again, there's probably 10 to 12 companies. We actually just transact on one of their deals, probably one of their most exciting fintech companies. That is probably representative of how these conversations start. They want to either look at a fund or more broadly, and we will do our curation exercise and really down-select. It could be one or two, it could be five to 10, 
a lot of these portfolio funds will have multiple portfolios in it. Newview One was 80% was 31 companies from one firm in EA. A lot of these portfolio opportunities we have, it'll be multiple portfolios from different GPs that we coalesce to a fund. How do you think about your exit strategy on your portfolio companies? I think it's broad-based. We've exited by IPO. We've exited by strategic M&A. We've exited by financial sponsor M&A. That's going to be a very vibrant area over the next decade. And these folks like Vista, Tomo Bravo, and others are arming themselves with tens of billions. I think SPACs have had their run up. They've had their run down. And the hope is that they'll stabilize into another opportunity set for folks to get liquidity. I do think that down the road, I could see us exiting by a secondary. We're buyers. We could also be sellers. So we view that as just yet another path to exit. What are the new opportunities you've seen in the market since you got started? Companies recognizing that you would think secondary in terms of institutions getting liquidity, but the individuals need liquidity as well. So we've effectuated large tenders where you give liquidity to employees and we run that whole process. And then you can tack on early founders and angels and exited employees and all that. And that's been a new opportunity. I would say that a real opportunity is just the explosion of venture firms realizing, okay, I have a fundraising calendar in 23 and 24. I need to do something about it. And that probably is the biggest opportunity, I would say, that's really emerged. And then on the direct side, I think this back to basics, that era of fast money, highest price term sheet in the fastest number of days, people realize the other side of that where some of those growth firms maybe aren't with them. When companies curate their investors, we do really well. They do references on us, et cetera. So that's been an opportunity that really has emerged. We're happy to see that because we were worried in 2020, 2021, the market was just so different than how I had been trained. And so there was definitely some worrying signs, but that's definitely normalized back to something that's more long-term. So now that you're seeing a market again that looks a little bit like your early days in venture in 2000, you can imagine there being a flood more of these types of opportunities, challenges, and legacy portfolios. How do you think about triaging that landscape so that you can prioritize your time looking at the best opportunities? There's two sides of the same coin. For every amazing opportunity we see in this market, we have to also look at what we have buried in the ground. The fact that we don't do that many deals, we have 45-odd companies, we've got this whole operating team that's all over it, and they're really focused and they're compensating and valuated and not doing deals, but really helping companies. So I'll just give you one point in time. In April 2020, when COVID hit and we thought, oh, wow, that downturn was like four weeks. It was short-lived <laughs> for six weeks. But yeah, there was some worry on cash preservation and efficiencies and all those things. And our team just really dialed in similarly when this downturn hit. So that's how we triage the existing portfolio. The new portfolio, as I'd mentioned earlier, this whole product market fit referendum is really getting a sense. This continuum, whether it's nice to have versus must have, vitamin versus painkiller, whatever analogy you have. I've seen this movie several times and having losses still etched in my head of things going wrong. Really looking at these efficiency metrics underneath the cover that really could be good gatekeepers of product market fit, net dollar retention, things like that, churn. In an eroding environment, what is the resiliency and durability of this product? We try to spend time with the CEOs and management team. You know, that's one of the biggest lessons I've learned is 
the best CEOs I've backed in my career, they recruit exceptionally well. They're maniacal about the details. They're maniacal and focused on execution. Looking at those folks and seeing these new deals, how do they compare? It's an unfair comparison because I'm comparing the best of the best in my 23 years with a net new investment, but you can still see trends and see, okay, where's blind spots that we can address? The other thing is in triaging, when we spend time with CEOs now more than ever, are they coachable? There's some meetings where we walk away and it's like, I think the CEO still thinks it's 2021. And so those are usually a very quick exit. And that's more of a rare occasion. I think people really have internalized the market we're in. As you look at over the next couple of years, what are you hoping to achieve with the business? In the investing side, continue to perform, attracting really high quality portfolios and companies to our franchise, adding value to them and exiting them, really that full circle. We really do focus on returns. But also, I spend as much time, if not more, just on building the team because I really wanted to build a firm, not a fund. If it was just for one fund, I wouldn't have done it, but really something that far outlasts me. And that's taken a page out of my old firm, very nondescript name on the door. And the founders did a really nice job transitioning, really building that bench and making sure that we're staffed appropriately to attack this market that really we think is going to persist for the next five to 10 years. All right, Ravi, I want to ask you a couple of closing questions before I let you go. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? We really do love traveling. I have kids that are 14 and 11, so they're enjoying time with their parents before that changes. But also, just for my sanity, I do like to exercise. So whether it's running, biking, tennis, definitely need that working out as relief from the intensity of the day-to-day. What's your biggest pet peeve? Just how I was raised, just work ethic. People don't have a strong work ethic. That's something that is a real problem. How about on the investment side, your biggest investment pet peeve? You mean aside from making bad investments? I think there's been times, and I've been guilty of this, when your diligence and company moves away from the fundamentals to, I call it noise, deal dynamics, other things that are important, but not fundamental and core. So we try to make sure we're intellectually honest. And every time we do that, get the focus back into the fundamentals of the company. What mistake have you made that you'd never make again? Well, anything on never do again is aspirational, but I'd say the quality of the CEO is I just spend time and reflect in the last 20 plus years, just really investing time. And it's not something that makes TechCrunch and a lot of the media, but just the execution capabilities, the hiring capabilities of the CEO and the management team is really something that we spend a lot of time. And I try not to repeat mistakes of the past in that. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? Totally different circles. First, my grandfather. I born in South India, a city called Madras, called Chennai now. He was a lawyer. He ended his practicing lawyer at age 92. So taught me the work ethic piece. And then probably more recently and more relevant to venture, Peter Barris, who hired me at NEA. He ran NEA for 20 years. Rare blend of great investor, but also just a great operator and also just a great manager and leader, really built the firm. And he's a senior advisor with us. And I hearken back to a lot of things he's told me and use that to try to build NewView in a similar way. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? Again, this work ethic piece, that was something that was unequivocal and not up for discussion or debate, which sadly and unfortunately, my kids are getting the brunt of that now. 
All right, Robbie, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? Well, it's really apt now, but I would say pace yourself, especially with the intensity of venture and all the things that are coming at you. And just enjoy the ride. Something my wife keeps telling me is just enjoy building this firm, enjoy this journey, even though it has twists and turns. Those two are things I try to take to heart every day. Well, Robbie, thanks so much for sharing this really interesting niche that you found in an otherwise incredibly busy ecosystem. Thanks so much, Todd. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening to this Sponsored Insight. Sponsored episodes are paid opportunities for another 12 managers a year to appear on the podcast. If you're interested in telling your story in front of the largest audience of investors in the industry, please email us at team at to apply for one of the slots.